Hello and welcome to Las Blancas podcast. I'm your host, Om Arvin, and as always, I'm joined by Grant Little. We return with Real Madrid Femenino football after the international break. The bad news coming into this game was that Misa Rodriguez, Ivana Andres, and Ateneo del Castillo, the three players that went to the international games with Spain, were not available for our match versus Valencia. And that's simply because of especially strict quarantine measures that Real Madrid has, which I think is a good thing. Despite the fact that they did not test negative for COVID, there was a COVID positive test within the, within the camp itself. And so Real Madrid's protocol is like really strict, right? So there was a negative test. doesn't matter. There's a quarantine period. If there's any chance at all that you came into contact with someone and um, they're testing them multiple times while keeping them apart. And so the decision was made, okay, they're not, they're not going to play this game. I think that's a good thing. Regardless, we're coming up against one of the worst teams in the league, Valencia, if there was ever a time to do this, it was now. And the good news is that we were getting some players back, most notably Maite Rose, Teresa Aviera, and Esther Gonzalez. So if there was also ever time we could kind of deal with these absences, give them a rest, it's now when we're getting two of our most important midfielders back, plus our other really important striker, who, guess what, ended up scoring two goals on the day, and we went on to beat Valencia 2-1. Grant, what were your feelings coming into this one? You saw the starting lineup. It looked you know, kind of expected to me. I thought it was going to be a 4-4-2. Turns out to be a 5-2-1-2 with Lucia Rodriguez playing at right center back. What did you think of that? I mean, is it just another case of like, okay, I mean, it's, it's Osnar is going to be Osnar. Were you like, okay, I didn't expect this, but you know what? It's actually fine. I can understand it. What are you thinking coming into this one and when you saw the formation? Yeah, I kind of just let the expectations go until I start seeing it on the pitch. I saw the, the lineup drop and, you know, we've just been kind of piecing together lineups throughout this entire season with injuries, with quarantine, with all of these things we have three gone we have three back in so I assumed we were going to run with a two front of Esther and Naikari and other than that I was you know skeptical to see how fit the midfielders were and things like that so I didn't have anything for or against the starting lineup Um, I think that it's pretty clear that until maybe we get everyone healthy that Osnar is going to stick with that three back slash five back I thought it was just a bit weird it felt like sort of unnecessary right because we had all the personnel to just kind of play a normal 4-4-2 right um with everyone out there on the field you could have just had Olga Carmona play at left wing instead of left wing back yes Lucia Rodriguez would be playing at left back um but I mean there's no ideal option there right and She's looked better of late so I would have been comfortable with that it just felt like okay we can kind of go back to the system I assume or I assumed that like this is what we're going to go back to when everyone comes back. Now I'm now I'm like kind of really unsure because even though we had the personnel to go 442/4231 or whatever it was a back three again. I'm trying to figure out whether this is just okay. It's just you know a one time well it's not if this is a continuation but it's just for this instance again and you know once for example, Cardona, Asani come back, like surely it's got to be different, right? Are you, you're not going to play Cardona as a wing back. But I also do wonder because this formation has coincided with some better results compared to how we started the season, whether Osnar thinks in particular, oh, this is giving me an advantage in some way. 
as usual, it's kind of impossible to actually figure out what he's thinking, what his intentions are, because his logical processes are never clear. Me, at least, I, I, I would just like, you know, keep an eye on it. If it, if it appears again, like I would start thinking about maybe this is he, he sees this as maybe a formation to go forward with, right? He's in the past just kind of like turned to certain formations and and decided, okay, this is this is the one for a lot of moments, right? Like that happened randomly with the diamond. In that case, it turned out to be a decent gambit most of the time. I'm less sure about this one, but ultimately I as I was pondering that, I was like, I don't know if it, it matters too much in this game. I'll just basically I'm just gonna take this as let me see how Lucio Rodriguez does at right center back. And otherwise, it shouldn't matter that much, right? Like, we should outmatch Valencia. We should get the win regardless whether it's a 4-4-2 or 5-3-2 or 5-2-1-2 or whatever. And I don't know if it quite worked out that way in the sense of outmatching Valencia. We'll get into that. But how did you feel Lucio Rodriguez did at right center back? Because really, that's, I think, the most interesting talking point about this game besides Esther's brace, which we'll get to. I mean, was there that much notable to take away I mean, she played in midfield, right? We, we've seen her in the last few games, the last game um, when most of the midfielders or all of them besides Zornoza was out. We saw Lucia come in there. We were like, okay, she's actually better than, than there than Claudia. And maybe that's why Austin is like, let me try it right center back. How do you feel she performed? I thought she was fine. I think overall the defense struggled a little bit when Valencia came at us in transition where the left or right center back would collapse in with Rocio because there was kind of this confusion on who's going to step to the ball carrier. And then it left space for the overlap on the flank where Valencia had a little success entering the final third. Other than that, I thought she did pretty well playing the ball out of the back. I thought she put in some good challenges, things like that. I don't think it was anything to write too much home about. But that was just one systemic thing with the three back that I noticed that I was a little worried about. And maybe you come up against a team with some better wing back slash forward combination play and you get hurt a little more on that. I thought it was okay. She didn't really stand out to me there, like not to to the extent that it was like, oh man, like this was a hugely worthwhile kind of gambit because it's providing us really so much there. I, she, had, she had her mistake. She was okay in other instances. She's not a horrible option there, but probably, you know, she offers a lot more when she actually gets to be an attacking wing back, going up the pitch, taking players on from the sideline, and then maybe kind of cutting inside as need be rather than being in a more restricted role where more is on her distribution and uh, she's kind of defending your deeper, more central positions rather than kind of either pressing higher up the pitch or kind of tracking back into wide areas. So I wouldn't necessarily go with it again if I had a choice, but ultimately it just kind of felt like a wash to me. It was like whatever. So the conditions in this game were awful. Which I'm yeah, sure is going to be crazy. Yeah, it, it was like a, a minor, like a torrential downpour, like yeah. monsoon. Like it was crazy. The camera was like shaking. It was going in and out. 
something weird happened with the audio feed where it like somehow switched to what I think was the Real Madrid TV commentator. I was watching on Atta football, by the way. So I like randomly for like a minute, I was hearing the Spanish audio along with the, the, the one guy, the one English guy. So that was bizarre. The like feed went in and out a little bit. So like, not that we've never encountered this type of stuff before, but basically like the rain was messing with the equipment to that extent. And for like a good 35 minute period of the match, like you, you, you could barely see like the far side of the pitch because it was just rain. So we can keep that in account when kind of, I think maybe going over why this wasn't the best performance, but again, I think a lot of the issues maybe we saw is, is also still related to, to some of the things we've seen in the past. And so I don't know how much of a pass we give, especially given that Valencia are really not a good opponent. They're probably going to be in a relegation dogfight for this entire season. If not, like they'll be close. And the, the team we had on paper really was a lot better. So how, how do you kind of feel about our start to the game and really, I guess, the first half? Obviously, we went 2-0 up. We scored the goals. But we'll, we'll get to that and we'll talk about Esther's performance as a whole but aside from that like were we creating enough how was our defense essentially was this a good return to to, to form for rounded feminino no i don't think it was i think it was a half where we have seen a lot of what we've seen throughout all of last season and throughout this season except we just finished our few chances there was a lot of possession around the back and then once we get into midfield, we're able to get forward, kind of pin Valencia back. Valencia drops. But then we struggle to get the ball between the lines. Lorena barely had any touches. Naikari and Esther and Lorena all had to drop super deep to get any touches on the ball. There was no real central progression. There was no real line-breaking passes except for a few from Maite and Zornosa. And we weren't able to consistently access the center of the pitch in the final third. And we all know what happens when we do that. We pump the ball wide and try and cross or take on players and things like that. And it became easy and predictable for Valencia. We had a couple moments of brilliance and moments of bad defending from Valencia that allow us to score these two goals. And they're really two exceptional finishes. And I'm sure we'll get to those. But it's the same thing that we've seen, except this time we had enough quality and enough finishing that we were able to do it. It was a lot of like what we saw last season. Yeah. And that's kind of like the vibe I just have with this, with this Osnar team, right? It's what we've been seeing for a very long time. And basically what's going to take us higher, what's going to take us lower. It's the players. Right. And that's what, I guess that's a reason for optimism because we kind of know what we're going to get. We know what we could achieve when everyone's fit, but also it's kind of a sense of frustration, which is like, if we can achieve that much without a real tactical framework, then imagine if we had it, right? Where could we go? Because it just feels like we're working against that or having to work past that all the time. It's really difficult to like figure out what the clear offensive organization is, especially in a game like this, because like the consistency of what we're doing in buildup, I mean, besides just going wide, it's like, it's, it's kind of just all over the place, right? When you, like I challenge people to find like two consecutive sequences where everyone's kind of positioned as they were beforehand. And um, like there, there are repeatable patterns of progression. 
Now we can talk about unpredictability and fluidity being good, but that comes after you master, like it's, it's most beneficial after you've mastered the system, after you've understand the rules at play, if you have them, and then you go and you know how to break them and manipulate them because you've internalized your understanding of tactics so much that you can, oh, in this particular situation, let me move here because this is actually giving us an advantage within like the fluid nature of the game that like a basic framework could not, but I'm still, you know, fundamentally I'm playing to the rules. I'm just interpreting differently in this type of situation. I think it's like a massive stretch to argue. Like that's the type of thing we're doing. Um, that's like more like Barcelona Femini, right? I, I really don't think that's where we're at when it comes to our level of tactical understanding and, you know, the, the reason as to why things always look kind of like a mess out there. I do think, you know, the weather conditions and everything obviously made it worse and perhaps it played into why we're going direct so often. But again, this, it's very similar to things that we've seen before. And so the direct passing was annoying to me, not necessarily because I didn't think there was anything to exploit. I thought Valencia's back line looked really weak. If you see the run, if the lane is open, then you go for it. I just think we were forcing it a bit too much. In a game where it's clear we weren't really solid defensively, kind of like from minute five, six, I was like, Valencia are actually getting forward and getting into decent areas is what I was thinking. I'd be interested to, to know how you feel about that, Grant. And because of that, I was like, I think really we should keep more possession, especially after we went 1-0 up. Like, we're just gifting transition to Valencia, a side that's really not much doing much with their own regular possession play, which is pretty much what, what, what I'd expect. And it was just it was just a bit too much with how we were just kind of trying to pump balls into the front line, kind of symptomatic of the general problem we have of not really having an organized, systematic way of approaching the final third in a way that's creating advantages for us. And then we can release our forwards into space. It's just all kind of like randomly happening, probably exacerbated a little bit by, okay, the chemistry of a lot, a lot of things are still off. Although I think Maite and Zornoza were two bright spots. Like they held things together well when we were playing on the ground and they connected with each other well. And Zornoza in particular had a, a, her best performance of the season, maybe after being like a pretty big disappointment for a while now. Um, I think perhaps, well, one, the rest probably helps her, but I think perhaps like ha- having less pressure with not only having a, another central midfielder on the field next to her who can share the load but also like knowing that she has a backup on the bench because today said didn't start probably helped her as well because I think it was just there was just too much on her shoulders whether we wanted to or expected her to be able to deliver under those circumstances. I completely so, yeah. agree with the, with that statement about Zornoza and Maite. I think she clearly looked more comfortable making these passes that ended up resulting in goals. I think she looked more comfortable defensively having someone who's she knows is behind her, and I think. Just the effect that Maite has, obviously we know how good she is in possession with the ball, but there were just moments where she's not even getting the ball, but her dropping off, she drags one or two players and creates a passing lane for others. These little things allow Zornosa and her to link up better to create more space for one another. And I think, you know, what, what you said about her being more comfortable in this match, I don't, yeah, I don't think it's a coincidence. And I think it, directly correlates to having a midfielder like Maite in there. I think the synergy, because I said maybe the chemistry isn't there, but I think the synergy between a lot of players is actually like 
good on the day. And that's part of what was a little frustrating to me because I, I felt like the framework at its most basic level, right, the formation was theoretically going to outmatch Valencia in all phases of the, of, of the game, right? We have the three at the back versus their front two. We have wide wing backs that can push high and wide, stretch their defense. And then we have three players who are going to compact the center, be able to receive between lines as our wings backs stretch them wide. Like, so the three players being Lorena, Esther, and Aikari. And then you have Zornoz and Maite being able to stitch that together, pick open the open spaces. And really, it's like quite a decent framework to go at everything. And it's part of why, like, initially I was thinking, you know what, Lucia, right center back, might even turn out to be a positive right? Because this is like a good base formation, but we just, there just wasn't any clear idea of how we were progressing into the final third to be able to like utilize all of the nominal advantages we had. But there were still like moments, right? Where Maite, obviously Maite Zornoz are clever players. They can see the advantages that can potentially materialize for them. They're kind of floating, you know, organically into areas trying to build things. And, and then I think that's kind of what we saw on the goal was the the potential of what we put out there to just split Valencia open, who, by the way, weren't actually really defending that well, right? It's not like we were coming up against, you know, some epic block that was going to stifle us even on our best day. I mean, they they weren't that good. I I mean, offensively, it was a little bit of a different story. I was actually kind of impressed. But defensively, I I was not. And on that particular goal, so let's just get into that. Let's talk about Esther and all of that. But on that particular goal, you have you know, both Maite and Zornoza coming to connect, to connect with each other after taking the ball from the right wing, circulating back inside. And then Lorena, and this was probably her most impactful thing of, thing of the game because as you, as you were correct in, in saying, Grant, she didn't get on the ball much. She just kind of peels off to the right and pulls a central midfielder with her. And whether that was intentional or not in terms of trying to open a lane, it ended up doing so. If Lorena only did it because she wanted to receive the ball, it was still a smart movement anyway. Intention is not always that important if you're just making smart movements because smart movements have multiple effects, right? So that's why you just do them. And so Lorena pulls away, kind of drags a central midfielder with her, and then that opens up the, the passing, line, passing line straight to Esther. And Zornoza kind of sees it within a split second plays a perfect ball. Esther's onside. She goes through one versus one. And it's a really nice finish. Grant, anything you want to add on that goal? This Not pass was ridiculous. This pass was absolutely ridiculous. And this kind of pass and finish is, is the kind of things we talk about when we talk about individual brilliance allowing us to score in this game and not necessarily having, you know, this wasn't, well, I don't know for sure, but this was not some tactical master plan. This was, you know, you talk about the Lorena run. I like how you said, I don't know for sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, we just got to be, maybe that's exactly what Osnar drove. I don't know. I don't think it was. So you have this Lorena movement. You have this insane ability to spot the run, split. I don't even know how many defenders right to Esther. Esther takes this thing like she's playing FIFA and just takes a couple touches and laces the ball into the back of the net. And that's that's a chance right there that we have missed so many times throughout this season. And we do not create an abundance of chances. So it is really, really important that you have someone like Esther in those moments 
who's feeling good, who can just put her foot through the ball and finish. And it was, it was a great goal. But again, it didn't come out of all that much. It was one moment of brilliance from two players. And it was nothing that we could look at and be like, this is a way that we could break Valencia down because it's not that repeatable if you're not doing the right thing. So I think the actions on the goal is somewhat repeatable in terms of, okay, you build wide, right? Because Valencia trying to block up the center, then you kind of overload that zone with your central midfielders coming over. You have Lorena try to pull someone and then you play the ball in, right? Like that feels kind of fairly typical. It's the fact that we only saw that once and we never did it again. That's kind of a sign that there's no real organization here because right. that just feels yeah. like a really obvious way, especially when you see it happen. So, I mean, that, that's, it's, it's, I find it, it's often more difficult to explain tactics not being there, why they're not there evidence for why they're not there than explaining the ones that are because you're basically looking for things that don't exist right and it's just and and i feel like if you don't have a certain sense of what tactics in the modern game mean to you you can kind of pick out anything and say well they're doing this and they're doing this i mean often the way i kind of put it is like you know basically go through and look at all phases of the game First of all, identify what we're doing. And then are there repeatable actions? Is there some level of consistency? Are there some patterns at play to the way players are positioned, the way they move in relation to each other, and the way the ball circulates? And if, the, if you find it really difficult to answer that question, which I think is the case with Real Madrid Feminino under Osnar, then the likelihood is that there really isn't much coaching going on, going on. There isn't really much tactical work going on in this specific offensive phase of the game. It was basically situational. Right. Like, it, it, obviously, this is repeatable. We've seen teams do it over and over and over again. And I think this is an important point, especially teams like Barcelona. But you can identify the patterns, the movements, that are repeatable and consistent throughout the match that lead to these kind of things. My point and is, this, is we don't see that with Real Madrid. Yeah. This was one of these moments that it happens and it's great that it happened and it's great recognition, great finish, but there was nothing identifiable to be like, Oh, we can do this again. Right. And even with Barca, who I think the most fluid adaptable possession based team in the world, like at least for me, it's super easy to point out, okay, they do these three things every single time. And then they're, fluidity and adaptations happen off of that right and so this is not to say that oh having an identifiable repetitive kind of structure and set of patterns is just unequivocally a good thing it's just literally like the basics that come with observing whether there's tactical framework right it can get a lot more complex than that there can be a lot of adjustments here and there. They can be asymmetric, but like literally for there, for you even to be able to identify what's there, that's like at its most basic level, what it is. And we don't see that. And that to me is kind of like the biggest sign of like, all right, like this is why I just not overly excited with what I saw today. Going into S there, because I don't really have to say more about this. I mean, I feel like we're just finding a mildly different way every single podcast to talk about the tactical issue. I really liked Esther's game today. It was my, my favorite part 
of the game. Obviously, she scored the two goals, right? And we'll just let's just discuss the second one real quick because I don't think it's too complicated. Real Madrid take a deep free kick. Valencia have been trying, or they were trying to hold a high offside line the entire time. They get it completely wrong in that instance. Like literally, only one person on the far side drops because she realizes the timing is off. So Esther receives completely free, but she still has a ton of work to do because she receives with her back to goal, takes the touch, swivels, and puts the ball into the back of the net with the beautiful half volley connection. That that was just that was art right there. That was that was that was beautiful, and that got me up up off of my seat because I was like, oh, this is the Esther I remember from from last season and pull off something spectacular like that. But what I liked about this Esther performance is it was different from the Esther of last season. We got the goals, but the way she was positioning herself and moving was not as ball dominant as we've seen last season and as we've seen before she got injured. Now, there were certainly moments where she was dropping off. Grant, you kind of mentioned how the, the forward players kind of had to drop off to get on the ball, which is certainly true. And if you disagree with me, feel free to go ahead because Maybe if I go back and, you know, rewatch it again, like I, I may feel different about it. But I thought Esther was choosing her moments to drop off way more than I've seen her in the past. There was a lot more of positioning herself across from Nayakari against the last line, looking to make runs in behind and just kind of like more or less holding her position, keeping defenders occupied, threatening in the channel as opposed to just dropping off every single time to get on the ball, which maybe she could be justified in doing, because as we said, we don't have a real clear idea to move to the final third, which I think is why we've seen her dropping off so much to such a ridiculous extent in prior games, because it just, it almost like, it almost just like enhances that habit she has, because if there's not a collective structure, it's almost always an okay solution for her to drop off. I like that that didn't happen, at least in my eyes today, so much. I still, I wouldn't say that all of her movements dropping off are like super tactical and, you know, super perfect within the, within like in relation to everything that was happening, like what Lorena might do. But the idea that she kind of like shifted to her tenacious hold up plate being like a secondary way of impacting rather than her go to way of getting involved is something I enjoyed. And I think that that benefited us, right? I think the fact that we were able to get other people involved in between the lines at all is because Esther was doing a, a good job playing the two roles, being an actual striker as well as dropping off. And that's also what kind of frustrates me with our inability to really have a more dominant performance was when you have two strikers who are positioned on the center backs like that, who are disciplined, who are making good runs, in addition to a 10 behind them, like you've really got a lot of players locked locked into you know a, a certain set of positions and there's a lot of potential for, for man, manipulation there to open space play through them which we just didn't see but ultimately it was something i, I quite liked from Esther. um we saw a lot less of her in the second half but she was probably the player of the match zornoza was pretty good so I mean, it would probably be between those two, but I I just like the the stylistic change. I have no idea whether it will continue, but I do wonder either whether Esther kind of realized she maybe needed to shift something. Maybe Osner gets some credit here, and ha- he had a discussion, or she, this is just naturally 
she's figuring out the chemistry of everything and she's realizing, okay, I got to position myself here, you know, more often because other players are going to fill those zones and I have to trust my teammates. Yeah, I don't have much to add on her positioning. I think you're spot on there. It, it seemed a lot more contained or a lot more intentional rather than just running around just to get on the ball. As for that finish, I mean, two really, really good finishes. And this is, you know, this is the Esther that Real Madrid signed. Um, the first one was a great finish. The, the touch and the turn and the finish for the second goal was amazing as well. It was a really good performance. And, you know, Zornoza's on the other end of both of them providing the assist. So I think I'd probably give player the match to Esther, but you have to have Zornoza up there too because she was able to get Esther in those, get the ball to Esther in those positions. What about Mete? Mete arose. You don't think she was, she was. I didn't have to deal with that. I was watching on Twitch. (laughs) So I had the Real Madrid TV announcers. Didn't have to deal with that. But I mean, as I said earlier. Oh, man. Just having Maite, even if she ran around and didn't touch the ball, her movement affects the way we play so much. Obviously, we want her on the ball. Her dropping off and being able to slow things down, dictate a little bit, serve as someone who can switch the ball side to side and also play penetrative passes and link up with one-twos. A little Maite back heel as well today. All of the things that we love to see, and it's really really good and important to have back so just so people know what the fuck i'm talking about um or what i was what i was saying so you know we've we've had a lot of praise for octa football and um we've actually liked the commentator they've had when he's been on i think he you know he does a decent job tries to pronounce the name correctly everything you know no hate towards this new guy like it was i think he was like a a substitute teacher or something like he had to come in because this normal guy wasn't on and he was like fighting for his life trying to pronounce these names Mete Arroz, Rocchio, which is Rocio, Atanua and then like the one that which just really got me right is like and you know he practiced this because he like said Takon with like the full like I don't know what like trying to like accent the C or something it was like Tahan and I was like <laughs> I mean I don't maybe that's actually how you pronounce it but I've literally never heard anyone pronounce it that way so there was that and um I he might have called Kenji Robles Kenji Rodriguez once but I that one I think is just you know it's a normal mistake because he called her Kenji Robles all other times so you know what that's fine and then at halftime, there was like uh, highlights of Barca destroying Real Sociedad. And I don't know if it was the same guy, but whoever it was called Claudia Pina Pina, which was, which was fun. I guess it's hard, you know. I know I've, I pronounced like Naikari for the lo- wrong for like the longest time. I was like emphasizing the H too much. Maybe I'm still not doing it properly. And I think Raquel kind of told me like, you know, there's no, there's no real H sound. And I was like, right. So, you know, it's, it's tough, but. It's just kind of like how often it happens, you know, the NWSL game yesterday. What was the mistake please, they made? Please don't even get me started. <laughs> Angela Ryan, Angela Ryan. For those of you that don't watch the NWSL, there is a player named Yasmin Ryan and there's a player named Angela Salem. Angela Salem has been around playing longer than this league has existed. So one of the names that you should probably get right 
and for a good four or five times in a row, he referred to her as Angela Ryan. So where are we? I just kind of took us on a random detour. First half, what else do we want to talk about? Uh, we had another chance to really make it um, 3-0 a minute after Esther scored. We had a little bit of sustained pressure. Kenty Cross pops back out. Kenty crosses again to the head of Olga, who just heads it wide. It was a it was a chance to put the game to bed. And I mean, one of our last real chances of the game, I would say. There we didn't create all that much in the second half. I thought Olga was good. Yeah, I don't know. If I did too. She she was necessarily involved in like a ton of concrete sequences, but like just took players on well, put balls into the box, was was connecting well with players. It looked like if something was going to happen, she was one of the more likely players to make it happen. And uh, none of this was a guarantee because really early in the match, she goes down under an absolutely horrendous challenge on her Achilles that had her in pain for like a good two, three minutes, right? Like it looked like she was trying to shake it off. And then she went back to the ground and asked for the physio to come on. And I was just fearing the worst. I was like, Oh my God, you've got to be shitting me. We're going to have another serious injury. And I wouldn't be surprised if she feels that more after the game, but she kind of looked like she was able to shake it off. And I couldn't notice, I didn't notice really any issues you know, a couple minutes after that. And it looked like she was fine. So I thought she was good. Going into the second half, I think this is maybe where we start to see more of Real Madrid's defensive problems kind of come come to the fore, which I think were there in the first half, but it didn't really hurt us. We didn't kind of we could kind of ignore it because vibes are good. Esther scored two. Olga's not hurt. All good vibes, right? 62nd minute. Teresa comes on for Lorena. What did you feel about that sub? Um I thought I, I was fine with it. I was interested to see Terry in more of a a 10 role like where Lorena was playing normally we see her kind of more as an eight slash 10 so I was interested to see that I was interested to see her back from injury I mean she's one of my favorite players so I was really excited during that moment to finally see her and Maite back on the pitch together I thought it was fine I thought another central midfielder would be just exactly what the doctor ordered because I just felt like we were never really able to establish full control over the game. And just maybe going a little flatter, having a line of three and three players who want to control the ball, maybe slow the tempo down a little bit more would be good for us. And then we concede five minutes later in the 68. I mean, I don't really think it had anything to do with the sub, but uh, do you want to do the honors and go over this absolutely sure. hilarious sequence? So I didn't even realize this in the first place, but Valencia's player Curly goes down and actually goes off of the pitch, and they were yet to make the substitution. So Valencia have 10 players on the pitch to Real Madrid's 11, and they take the ensuing free kick, and it's not properly cleared away. And the Valencia player just kind of turns and fires this shot. It catches. Meline Girard a little bit out. She tips it off the bar and up, and she kind of falls back. And Martha Caro is the first person there. But not far behind is Rocio, who makes an incredible challenge to 
block Caro's initial shot. Caro gets the ball again, shoots. Gerard makes a really good save to deny her second shot, but the save falls right into the pass of Oriana Altuve, who just strikes it into the back of the net. It was really, really, really chaotic, and just we were unable to clear our lines on multiple occasions, and Valencia pounced, and then they were feeling really good after that and rode that momentum wave. Our defending on set pieces was horrendous today. And I'm not sure what's been going on this entire time. We've been, we've been talking about Real Madrid defending our defensive set pieces. I feel like we've made certain improvements here and there on offensive set pieces. It's far from perfect, but I think you can tell that we were adding routines, trying some things. For example, today, like we were quite successful on offensive set pieces in terms of generating shots. We got a goal off of it. Bobet Pater ended up getting a shot very near the end of the entire game. That was a decent set piece. I don't know what we're doing on the other end. It just every single time there's a ball into the box, it looks like people don't know who they're marking. Someone is always free. And on this occasion, we don't properly clear the ball. But I think what's the worst part of this is like kind of everything that results after the rebound is just kind of like chaos and and comedy and that stuff kind of happened. What I think is really frustrating besides the fact that we couldn't clear that set piece is the fact that no one reacted to the shot, right? So what Valencia do a really good job of is two players, including Altuve, immediately are running towards goal to potentially get onto the rebound while our defenders just stand there. And that's the part where you feel like, okay, that's where it's most avoidable. Okay, it's kind of like a freak shot tipped onto the bar but your defenders have to be reacting to that. We're flat-footed, we're asleep, and then we can't get to the multiple rebounds and it's put away. So that's the frustrating part of it. And it just seems to stem from just a general lack of, of clarity about what we're doing on defensive set pieces. Later on, very near the end of the game, Valencia could have made it 2-2. Once again, having a set piece where they just kind of play it a vertical pass out to the right. And that's it, right? They're in a situation where they can play the ball across and the player just doesn't get to the shot, right? I'm describing that sequence correctly. Yeah, it was Altuve again, sliding through. Any kind yeah. of touch would have taken it into the back of the net. Basically, we nearly lost two points here because we couldn't defend off of set pieces, which just feels absolutely unacceptable. And now I think there were bigger defensive problems, which maybe we'll talk about you know, after this. But this is just like, I feel like the lowest hanging fruit out there. This is, you can save so many points. You can save so many scares like this just by being organized and knowing what you're doing in these situations, especially in like a season like this, where we're not getting anything easy, how you, you, you can't take care of the lowest hanging fruit. I don't know, but I mean, just another, I mean, we've been talking about this for ages, haven't we? All the time. And I don't know how you felt about this, but in the second half, it looked like we came out a bit flat. It looked like we had maybe packed in the result already. We're up two goals against a team that hasn't been very good this season. And I know you can never really gauge player motivation or whatever, but it looked like they came out flat and Valencia had an extra pep in their step. And once they got that goal, I mean, Real Madrid were on the ropes a little bit. And I really thought that a an equalizer was going to come. I think after they scored, it was just super clear that 
Valencia were more in the ascendancy and things were going to be uncomfortable for us. And we weren't quite sure how to claw things back. Again, it's always more difficult when you don't have a clear idea as a collective, how you're going to get towards goal, how you're going to react to situations. And you're just relying on players to just react in real time and kind of develop their own solutions. And yeah, I mean, after the goal, it it was kind of a tough watch. It was kind of a slog in general. I didn't think we were that good defensively. Uh, Our direct style of play led a lot of transitions being launched against us, but also in possession, it was just weird, right? It was, it was passive. It was narrow. In, In the beginning, Lorena didn't really sink back into the midfield line. We just kept our same shape on defense. So they were able to play into wide areas comfortably really stretch our double pivot thin, kind of like push our wing backs back, get access to midfield and then like find combinations down the flank, get out, get out wide and put crosses into the box. It was just weird how open we were defensively. Like it just felt like we weren't really paying attention there. And I don't think the formation and the lack of defensive width in midfield helped. It's funny because I think Teresa did bring like a certain element of control and a little bit more calmness on the ball. But it just defensively, it's like we never really came together. And combined with us just suddenly becoming a little more fearful or whatever and not being able to react going goal down, Valencia's, you know, were able to still kind of come on to us and eventually get that kind of one close chance at the end that pass had been a little more accurate. That's a goal and it's 2-2 and all of a sudden we're talking about a disaster here, right? Like drop points that just absolutely cannot be dropped at this stage. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think the second half especially contributes to this feeling like just, it wasn't a great performance. Right? Like we need to we need to close these results up. We need to have like easy control over games like this in the second half when we nearly just let it run away from us in the, in the end. And um, Osnar made a fair few kind of like defensive changes, basically, like Claudia Florentino coming on for Kenti Robles in the 74th, essentially kind of like, mailing in a little bit, saying kind of like, let's just hold on here, right? 83rd minute, Caroline Miller-Hansen comes on for Olga, and Corridor also comes on for Naikari Garcia. So um, obviously, like the actual swap happening here is Muller for Naikari and Marta Corridor for Olga, right? So you have Corridor coming in to be a bit more defensive in the end. It was a weird second half, the way that the team kind of like approached the entire thing. Thing. It was kind of a weird way Osnar kind of reacted to it. And just in general, it felt like we steadily lost the initiative and the game was in Valencia's hands, which is just something I don't really expect to say when I'm talking about a side like Valencia. That, what the second half should have been was like 65% possession, killing, you know, with passes at the back and just kind of walking to a really boring result. And we got something quite different. Any other kind of player performances you want to talk about? I thought Rocio was pretty good today. Um, stepping out, I've been really impressed with her in that center of the three back, just kind of dictating play both on and off the ball with her passing, with her ability to kind of step up. I think I noticed that a bit today in these transition moments without Ivana. She was one of the ones to kind of jump passing lanes and things like that. And I've been impressed with her as of late. and. She's she's really um, cementing a spot in that back line. I don't really have too much to add. We take on Rayo 7 a.m. November 6th, right? So that's the next And Rayo is similarly horrible, like Valencia. 
Valencia got their only win with a 1-0 win against Rio Vallecano, so this has to be three points again. They beat Sevilla, which kind of makes me feel like, how did we lose 3-0 to Sevilla then? Um, yeah, but this is an absolute must-win, because after that, we go to PSG November 9th, and it's another league game, another Champions League fixture against PSG, and not important just for the league, but also to build confidence going into that game, especially because we know how fragile our confidence is. So that's kind of what we have looked forward to now because, you know, in, international breaks over, it's, we're back into the regular club grind again. That was part one, talking about the game. Part two is going to be, and depending on what you already know about the situation, you could just skip this or not. But if you are not aware or you're barely aware of, the documentary Romper el Silencio that Movie Star Plus released on Thursday detailing what the Spanish women's national team had to endure from 1988 to 2015 under Ignacio, quote-unquote, Nacho Querida, then stick around because we're going to take you through kind of all the details you need to know about that. Just real quick, because you might want to learn about this in a different form, you can go watch the documentary itself. This stuff, I'll post it all in the show notes so you don't have to go searching. So if you know Spanish, there's a, it's, been, it's been posted on YouTube, and the documentary is just there. If you don't know Spanish, that's why we're explaining it now. But also, someone has kindly posted English subtitles for the doc. I think they did it today and I've shared it on my Twitter, but I'll post that in the show notes as well. So you can go there. You can watch that. It's 28 minutes. It's not that long. And it's really quite engrossing really because of how horrible the entire story is. And I've also written a thread, which I did on Friday when I learned that the documentary was released. And I just kind of spent like five hours of my morning just translating key quotes. Grant knows because I was going back and forth with him and asking him questions about it. I put all the key quotes together that I think kind of neatly summarizes everything that kind of happened, everything the player said, most of the stuff that you need to know about also will be posted in the show notes and you can just kind of go through that. But we're also going to talk about it all here. We're going to add maybe more context. We're going to add more of our personal thoughts on the matter, which are not really reflected, obviously not reflected in the documentary, not reflected in the thread I did because that was really just about just posting the quotes. And then also, I listened to a podcast that discussed specifically the Spanish women's national team, quote-unquote, mutiny at the 2015 World Cup, where they end up getting rid of this coach, Pereira. And I think that just adds greater context and some, some new information, if you're not aware, of, of everything that's, that's happening. So I think this is really important. In light of everything we've been seeing being exposed in women's football at the moment, this is something to talk about. Not just because this you know, documentary was released, but because I don't feel like enough people know about this. That's why I did the translation thread. I think an English-speaking audience needs to be aware what the Spanish women's national team has gone through and what it means for them to be where they are at the moment. And also the fact that some potential problems may still remain, which we'll, we'll kind of talk about and we'll get to. So basically, Ignacio Querida he was the women's national team coach for 27 years. 1988 is when he started. Angel Maria Villar, who's another key character in the story, 
was president of the RFEF in this time. He's the one that appointed Kareda, and they were basically thick as thieves. And everything that happened kind of happened with them together or with them kind of backing and supporting each other. And it kind of starts off friendly, I guess, as, as things always do. And then you have really quickly the players, you know, get into it and start. Yeah, I mean, he was friendly, but it, it became sour quick. He was tyrannical with people. He would apparently go around in a training circle that he formed and just give out insults to the player. He'd say players are fat. He'd say that they needed an alpha male as a partner. On a fundamental level, being an extremely abusive, mean person who took joy in kind of humiliating and in, insulting people, which is what Maria Teresa Andreu, ex-president of women's football, said in that documentary, right? So there are a number of people that came off. She was one of them. I made fun of the commentator for, uh, for mispronouncing names, but I don't know how to pronounce the first name, but Boronat is a journalist. I would imagine that it's something close to Danai Boronat. And um, yeah, it was, she originally detailed this in her book, right? It's called No Las Llames Chicas, Llama Las Futbolistas. And if you guys know the translation of that, it's basically don't call us little girls, call us footballers, which we'll, we'll kind of touch on as we continue to go on here because this coach basically throughout the entire thing is calling the players who are adult women chavalitas which is kind of diminutive it's really weird to be like me going to some 20 year old woman on the street and calling her little girl is very very weird and creates a strange power dynamic so that is the book that Boronat details all of this in and then eventually you know we have this little 28 minute documentary that that came out recently where she is also a main feature yeah, so she's an important figure just in terms of providing a lot of information and context around things. She said that the only impact he had on this squad was that he limited the players and, and reduced their self-esteem. So other you know, key characters are ex-players, Mark Prieto, Rosario Serra, Natalia Pablos, and then you know, Vicky Losada as well, who we're all, you know, I, I think everyone in this podcast is aware of who she is former Barcelona player, now at Manchester City. And I think kind of like the protagonist of the story, Vero Boquete, who kind of like led the charge in all of this. And we'll get to her um, at the end because the podcast that I listened to on like the 2015 mutiny was like, she, she kind of interviewed for this. And, she, and, and we, we can talk about her role in this and really, I mean, the price she paid, but also like what she did and how she should be you know, I, I think upheld and respected for, for the action she took, which has dramatically improved the, the experience for the national team today, even though she's no longer part of it. So, all right. Basically, the idea being this guy's super abusive and basically it just created a culture of fear with the players. Vero talks about how they just had to make jokes to deal with it because there was nothing else they could do when he kind of yelled at them, when he, you know, said stuff like you're fat, you know, when he called them Shavalita. And Vicky talked about how when she arrives in this situation as a teenager and she sees kind of like all the other 
adult experienced veteran players just kind of having to put up with it to her she's like oh this is normal right this is also what i have to put up with which is one of the most depressing thoughts in the world these players talk about people crying after he yelled at them which isn't a surprise and essentially like getting to the vibe where some players just never had like a real conversation with this guy the entire time they were in this national team because people were so scared to talk They didn't want to run into him in the hall, in the cafeteria, right? It was just avoid this guy at all costs because just for the fun of it, he's going he's gonna to try to put you down. He's going to try to verbally abuse you. So something quite similar to the Richie Burke situation, though I think this, this is taken further and it's, you know, yeah, it's, yeah. it's even worse. If I could just hop in for a second, all, all, a lot of what is detailed here is is psychological abuse but there were even images that were really really disturbing throughout the thing of him like having players that were about to sub on and grabbing them by their ear and shaking it and you can see the distress or the uncomfortability of the player there was another moment where they're maybe celebrating a win and he goes up to the goalkeeper grabs her by both cheeks and is shaking her head And then I'm sure we'll get to the Vicky Lozada part, so I, I won't touch on that. But just the, the psychological abuse. But there also seemed to be a bit of, like, physical abuse as well. So it was just a really, really horrible situation. There was an extreme paternalistic, sexist attitude coming from Kareda and really from the Federation itself that came out in these types of ways where he felt like, oh, I can just pinch you by the ear because you're, you're a little girl, right? Like, I don't take you seriously. That, in addition to calling him Chavalita all the time, he also used a word called Tetufa, which translates to like smurf slash like small girl. It's like an even more insulting way of like basically calling someone like a little girl, basically. And it wasn't like this was like a thing he did in private. In the documentary, you see, like, he can see, he knows there's a camera on him. He knows this is going to go out to the public. And he's there calling them Chavalita and saying, let's go, right? Like, it, it's the thing that's wild is how blatant so much of this was. And the fact that, like, you see some of these moments on camera. And yeah, we will get to the Vicky Lozada thing because that, I will never forget that moment after seeing it because it just boils my blood in a way that, he- that's difficult to describe. Andy was also using slurs for people who live in Catalonia. I mean, the guy was just atrocious. He was horrible. Yeah, so, I, I mean, let's just talk about that now then. So there was, there was the sexism. There was the paternalism. Then there was the fact that he referred to the Catalan players as Polaca, which I had to do a little bit of research to figure out what that was exactly. Vicky was the one who mentioned that, I think. And she was confused. Like she didn't even seem to know what it meant. And it, it seems to almost be kind of like an older term that people use. It means Polish, which, and it has like this, like kind of ethnic racist connotations used against Catalans, almost kind of inferring a kind of like foreignness onto them, right? Like you're not really Spanish. He had his own little term for each group in a way that could belittle them, in a way that was bigoted, in a way that was mean, in a way that was dispiriting. And on top of all of this, my man was super vocal about how much he hated homosexuality. Losada recounts a conversation where he goes up to her and says, I want to eradicate homosexuality. And he told her this when she was apparently 16, 17 years old. Vero talks about how he referred to it as a sickness. Natalia Pablo said that 
the media is always looking for controversy. So you guys have to, you have to stay closeted, right? You can't be open about this because if they know there are homosexuals in the team, they're going to make a big deal about it. It's like, it's sick on so many fundamental levels to just, I mean, the obvious fact that the view he holds is absolutely abhorrent, but the, the seeming like freedom he has to go up to someone who is homosexual themselves in Mosada put that message into her head and just kind of like, I want to eradicate homosexuality. Like you as a person who you are, not that I think he knew it, but he was aware that there's a lot of gay players in women's football. And, you know, he just goes up to them and be like, yeah, I think you are like subhuman basically. And so Lasada kind of talks about a little bit how, you know, that kind of held her back. She had fear for a lot of time, but she's, she was able to overcome it. She's public about it. But I mean, this guy was a, a real piece of work in every single way damaging the emotional and psychological well-being of his team through sexism, homophobia, ethnic bigotry, absolutely unacceptable things that would not be tolerated in any situation. There's this on top of the fact that, and this kind of ties back into like the paternalism, that he had like extreme controlling habits. He basically kept tabs on all of these players' activities. If they had a certain free day, he would schedule an activity so their free day was taken away. And so they could be under his eye. He could watch over them. And if they went out to buy something, Carrera would try to look into their bags if he could and see what they had bought. And then like the weirdest and most bizarre thing of all is when they're, I guess, where they were staying in like hotels or something, he would tell everyone to leave their doors open. And he would go room by room, look in, ask what was going on. And then he'd shut the door as if say, okay, now you have my permission to have privacy now that I check everything out. They're professionals. He's treating them like literal children who he feels he needs to have control over all the time. So we have a bully, we have a homophobe, we have a sexist, someone who's bigoted towards Catalans and who feels like he needs to control everything about the players. What does Angel Maria Villar do? Ex-RFEF president. He also tries to control the players in various different ways. So Boronat, the journalist, kind of talks about why didn't, you know, she kind of like kind of asked the question, why didn't Maria Villar do anything? And she's like says, kind of paraphrasing here, that it wasn't negligence on his part. He was comfortable with all of this. And what he did was he tried to keep the players intimidated and he tried to keep them quiet. Losada talked about how he wanted to control the things the players said and that going into the 2015 World Cup, Osada had five, six interviews that he just canceled, all of them, without talking to her, because he didn't want her to go out and you know, be talking about things, right? And then Natalia Pavlos mentions that they received guidelines when talking to the press because they needed to maintain a good product for the national team. And I mean, obviously, they're, they don't want anything that's happening, even as like a Freudian slip to come out. And there was a Freudian slip. Vero Bocchete in one press conference said that called their, their training leading up to everything a concentration camp, which she laughed about later and says, you know, Freudian slip, but it was true, right? I mean, it was so bad that they were scared that something like that would happen because they were abused and controlled to, to that degree, basically. Maria Villar was enabling all of this. And on top of this, because sometimes, and this is absolutely, this is no justification at all, but a lot of times people will say, well, who cares, you know, as long as they're winning, part of like a winning mentality or whatever, some bullshit nonsense like that. This dude was, 
you know, Carrera was a horrendous coach. His winning percentage was 38% across his entire tenure. And he literally did not train the team. He did not train the team. There were no tactics. He did not schedule things for them. There was no staff in like the run-up to, you know, the, and, and really beforehand, but it gets especially bad in the run-up to 2015 World Cup. The players talk about how there was no preparation for competitions. When Spain got third place in the 96 Euro, which was really like their greatest achievement until qualifying for the 2015 World Cup, it was because they just kind of worked hard and they had unity as a group. And they talked like that. They said that did not happen again because they, there was zero support from the coaching staff. There was zero support from Kereda. And the players talk about how in preparation for the World Cup, there were no friendlies. They had a couple of friendlies that were canceled. Imagine going to a World Cup with zero friendly preparation. They arrived three days before their first match versus Costa Rica in Canada with playing with jet lag in that game when other teams had arrived close to a month beforehand. The craziest thing for me about that, too, is they talk about how the only player that they knew on Costa Rica was Shirley Cruz because Vero had played with her before. Other than that, they had no idea who any other player was or how Costa Rica played or anything like that. In the lead-up to the 2015 World Cup, that is, I mean, that's just incompetence from the coach to not have that film, to not be going over that film. It's laughable, really, if you put everything else aside, that a coach would have a job and not be reviewing film. But then to put all that in everything going on together i mean it's just it's just ridiculous that he was able to be in power for so long and so this is where the podcast on the 2015 world cup kind of fills in you know a lot of details about what was going on and they talk about it a, a little bit on the documentary but because this is about the broader story as a whole they don't go into it as much Basad in the doc kind of mentions how they had to meet before a game establish a basic system between themselves as players, how to press, what their plan B was if something happened, because Kareda did not paint anything. But you really kind of get a greater sense of that in the podcast itself, where Vero talks about how they would do the video analysis themselves, because there was, there was literally no opposition scouting going on. In a World Cup, you don't know how the opposition plays. You don't know who the players are, because the coaching staff doesn't do it. And so the players were literally watching YouTube videos on the opposition team to figure out who the other players were, what system they played, and to decide the tactics themselves. And like Vero said, they were completely lost because that's not their job as players. And so that was the, the scale of, that was the level of preparation that Spain was doing in the 2015 World Cup. In the documentary, Natalia Pablos talks about how the only player they knew was the captain, as you mentioned, from Costa Rica. and then. The only video they had was something on Brazil. And, you know, Carrera told them, you know, Marta is the best player. And Pablo's talked about how, like, okay, Marta's was the best player. But she said she saw Marta's everywhere, implying that everyone on the team was really good. And she said, watching those players 24 hours prior to playing against them, I realized we had a lot of deficits. And you could see that. In the performances for Spain, they drew versus Costa Rica 1-1, and they ended up losing versus Brazil, and then they ended up losing versus South Korea, and they crashed out last in their group. 
this is and, and, and six years later, we're talking about a, a national team that might be the best in the world, you know, just to kind of put that in perspective. And it's not like the talent was not there. Vero Boquete probably still goes down as the greatest Spanish player of all time. I mean, she was a superstar at the time. She was an international force, has all sorts of accolades, won all sorts of individual awards. She's renowned in the NWSL. She's renowned abroad. She plays with AC Milan currently. There was real talent on that side. There was Priscilla Borja, Vicky Losada, you know, young Vicky Losada. There was real talent on that team that couldn't get out of a group stage because there was literally zero preparation. It was almost like they were trying to actively sabotage the team. We get to maybe the most powerful moment in the entire documentary when Vicky Losada talks about how she makes a mistake versus South Korea, which leads to them scoring. So Kareda subs her off. And it's just, I mean, I'm never going to, every time I see it, every time I think about it, it just makes me so angry. There's just something about this moment that just works you up. After he subs her off, she sits down, Kareda stands over her, looks her in the eye. The camera catches everything, right? You see this moment and that's what makes it so wild. He looks at her and says, it's because of these sorts of things you will always be a mediocre player. And this is why you will never amount to anything. In real time, you see Losala receiving that message. You see the sheer hurt in her eyes. And she starts crying immediately after. I almost don't want people to watch that moment because it messes with you so much. But I feel like you have to. Because I feel like nothing encapsulates better the type of man this guy was. And what the players had to endure this entire time than that moment and the fact that he just did it straight up in front of a camera for the entire world to see because he he didn't give a shit and he thought that it's my right i mean fuck you i'm the coach i want to belittle you in like think about what what it takes for a human being in a moment like this when you know your player has made a mistake that they instantly regret they're clearly feeling it you take them off, all this in an environment where they've had zero support to go out and be successful. And the first thing that comes to your mind is, I want to put you down. I want to make you feel even worse. The first thing you feel is this vindictive rage to put someone down because that's all you can think about as a coach instead of thinking about the well-being and welfare of your players is to look at them and say, this is why you will always be that. This is why you will never go anywhere. And this is the one public instance. This is just reflection of things that have been said to players over and over again. Think about the toll that that takes. How on earth can you expect footballers to go anywhere and achieve anything under that type of environment? It's the amount of like emotions you can see going through Lasada's face as well. Like you can see the clear contempt that she has for him as he says that. But what kills me is how that contempt turns to herself because that's the power of his words. That's what he was able to do time and time again when he put them down, when he belittled them in various different ways. I mean it, like this, it's just seared in my head. Like I've been thinking about this moment for so many days. Like, I, I don't know, maybe it's just, there's something wrong with me, but it's just messed with me 
for multiple days now. And every time I go back to it, I look at it, it makes me feel a type of way about this entire thing. How the fuck did this piece of shit get to do this for 27 years? It's just wild to see this and think this was in 2015. That's not all that long ago. And we've seen all of the things that happened this this year that have come out recently. And we've got a long way to go. But it's maybe a good sign that we're able to start having these conversations, that we're getting more coverage of these conversations and hopefully turning the tide so that we make it so there's not only not these people in positions of power anymore, but there are ways to keep them from getting power in the sport ever again or outside of the sport as well. This was like the breaking point for the players. And I mean, to be honest, actually, that's not true. There were several breaking points before. In the documentary, I think they mentioned three occasions where the players sent uh, or talked with Maria Teresa Andreu, the ex-president of women's football, who kind of acted as like their representative you know, with the Federation in these moments. So multiple times they, they, they kind of like drafted a letter with her basically saying like he needs to go. And they did this over the years. And she each time went to Angel Maria VR and each time she was put down and kind of dismissed. So in one of the moments she describes, she said she got the letter from the captain. She went to Madrid on a Tuesday, talked to him, and he just ripped up the paper and said, this is nonsense from the girls. And every time that happened, it had a repeatedly dispiriting effect on the team, on the players. I think after the first time they did that, one experiment says three or four of the players just never came back. Sarah talked about how when she kind of returned to Spain from Arsenal and went to Barca and she was just in this environment once again, like this was almost reflective of like an environment that just was there in, in women's football in Spain as a whole. She said like, that was it. She just quit. She lost the will to play football and she stopped when she was 27 years old. This was not in the doc, but it's actually on Ignacio Carrera's Wikipedia page an excellent legacy to have. In 2011, Laura Del Rio who, by the way, averaged over a goal a game for Spain, said that she would never play for the national team again while Carrera was still in charge. So this happened multiple times. There were multiple moments where the players went through, quote-unquote, the proper channels, which, by the way, Vicente del Bosque in 2015, when the players went public, said that the players should have gone through the proper channels. Yeah, mate, they did that multiple times, and it led to absolutely nothing because each time... Maria VR said, this is bullshit. I don't care. You know, shut up. And so you just had this repeated pattern of those who stayed with the national team playing worse and worse, being more and more dispirited. And a lot of good players just saying like, that's it. I'm done. I'm not dealing with this shit anymore. And 2015 was a breaking point in the sense that the players were going to do whatever it took to get this guy out. And so this is where the podcast brings in a lot of interesting context because the players still tried to work within the proper channels. They went directly to Carrera. Remember, this is a guy people are scared to talk to. No one wants to talk to him. The captains went to him, said, they didn't even say you need to go. They first said, we need better training. We need better support. 
at the time, they were only being paid 25 euros per day. Do the math in your head to what that adds up to and consider how fucking ridiculous that is. The RFEF had 100 million euros allocated to, to national team facilities, et cetera, travel. As a whole, 2% was allocated to the women's team, right? There was no first team analyst, et cetera, et cetera. The first move for them after this 2015 World Cup debacle was to go to him and say, can we just get some more support from the Federation? What does he say? He says, this is ridiculous. You guys are asking for way too much. So then the next step is everyone as a team having a meeting with the coaching staff and saying, look, you're a problem. You need to go. They tried multiple times talking directly to him. And I mean, he got angry. Obviously, he yelled at them. He said, either you're with me or you're out of the team. And so after all of this, after literal decades of trying to work within the channels, work within the team, try to voice their concerns in the politest way possible, they end up going to the press. And they draft a letter that when you guys look at it, it's in the documentary, it's pretty easy to find online. It's so tame for the things that had to endure. They start off blaming themselves. Vero said, like, we ended up coming to a conclusion that we had to do that, right? Like, it, we, we couldn't make it seem like we were trying to escape responsibility. I mean, that's the type of environment they were in. And so they start off saying, you know, we accept responsibility for this. We were at fault, but the preparation hasn't been good enough, et cetera, et cetera. Kareda needs to go. And there's no talk about abuse. There's no talk about any of that. It's just that we, we, we aren't supported. We aren't given what we were need. It's super, super tame for what they had to endure. And apparently this is released right before they leave Canada to go back to Spain. And when they meet Kareda and his coaching staff in the airport, they get yelled at. They get insulted. You guys have no shame. You know, how could you do this to us? How can you do this to the Federation? Blah, blah, blah. But I think the thing that Kareda and everyone else did not expect was it like it just it it spread like wildfire in Spain. And that was the end. There was an actual radio host who just kind of pressed Kareda on the subject. And I think this was actually before they made the letter public because they he talked to the players and he asked them, why were there no friendly scheduled? Why did you only arrive in Canada three days before the World Cup? And um, Kareda just ended the interview, basically. So I guess you should have maybe seen the signs that people were not going to allow this. And yeah, once it went public, it was basically over, right? There was damage control. Kareda went to the press and tried to say stuff. But it was over because 2015 World Cup brought a spotlight on the Spanish national team. It coincided with the sense, like, as, as a Spaniard, right? Like, you can't have this, right? There's a sense of national pride involved here that they just couldn't get away with when, all, when, when it came to light. And really, I'm aware that a lot of Spaniards knew about a lot of this at the time and in the years that followed. But I, I feel like the documentary brought more specific details to light that just, it was more horrifying than we, than we had imagined and we had known previously. The 2015 World Cup podcast was in 2018, so it was in the lead up to the 2019 World Cup. And for all the details it has and for the interview they had with Vero, it still leaves out, I think, the most horrifying details that only now came out in this documentary. I guess the respect they still ended up giving this guy and giving the Federation, it just, I, I guess, full power to them for being able to do this as graciously as possible and, you know, succeeding and coming out and doing what was necessary. I think 
this is where we get to the part of like, okay, why is this relevant to, to, to today? Besides the fact that you should know what these footballers have had to go through, you should understand the context of the Spanish national team's greatness within this context. But it's relevant to today because I'm not certain that all of this has been like completely stamped out. This is a federation who we've talked about again and again, consistently holding the league back, doing all sorts of fucking bullshit time and time and again, and only reacting after public pressure became way too much. So the reason I'm skeptical is there are certain facts that make you skeptical. Ignacio Carrera stayed within a position within the RFDF until 2018, if I'm not incorrect. And then Angel Maria Villar, when he went to UEFA, FIFA, and he had positions there, was arrested by an embezzlement scandal. So Jorge Vilda, who I'm sure we all know, comes in to the picture in 2015 to take over as head coach, kind of being like, okay, change the culture, change the professionalism. We're turning a page for the Spanish women's national team. I have not heard anything about there being like any kind of similar abuse and stuff. By all accounts, things are more professional. They have a first team analyst, but, you know, kind of inklings of like a similar paternalistic type mentality in terms of like players are not allowed to use their phone when they're not training and stuff like that. But really there it's, there's not that much information that's come out, right? There's what player is going to risk speaking out because of this specific thing. And this is like definitely the, the thing that stinks the most is that the players who spoke out, the players who led this charge were basically dropped from the Spanish national team. I think the most egregious one is Vero Boquete, who was dropped in 2018 prior when the World Cup quad was announced, and she was still in the prime of her powers. I think she was 29 to 30 years old, best player on the team, still considered one of the best players in the world, the best player in Spanish national team history, an absolute star drop. Vero, both in the podcast and in the documentary, kind of says like, yeah, I mean, I saw it coming. Saw it coming because I'm a person who likes to speak out. I'm a troublesome person who will always look to make things better at, at collective and individual level. And in the doc, she says, if I'm not in the team because of my actions, I accept that. I just wish there were more things that were spoken about and ended in another way. Again, like being like awfully gracious about the whole thing when I think she probably has every right to be furious that she will never play for the national team again because she had the audacity to stand up and say, stop treating us like shit. And she was really the one who led the charge in all of this. 2015, she was the catalyst for it. She was the face of it. She was the captain. She was the most recognizable star. She was the best player. And she kind of took the brunt of it. Natalia Pablos talks about how she believes that there was a retaliation against them. I think it's fairly obvious that there was. And, um, you know, I think Losada talks about it as well, saying that like she wished they got an actual farewell for like what they did as trailblazers within this team, the, the way they fought to kind of set the standard better for players like, you know, Alexia Puteas, Ateneda, Casio, Real Madrid players who are now entering that environment. And that really stinks to me. And Vilda was the one who dropped them. And the fact that he, his dad, used to be coach of the U19 team until 2014 when Vilda took over and then he was promoted to become coach of the first team with the... Like, it's still the same club, man, 
right? Like they've had to change things because if they were to do that again, they would get absolutely skewered because a precedent has been set. Players will come out again. I mean, Vilda has a reputation for not calling up players who are, you know, outside Real Madrid and Barca, not really paying attention to them. You know, it was only like last in this last international break where he ends up calling up Maitane, a sense that he's there just because he's daddy's boy and he has the right connections. And he could dismiss all of that by like not, you know, necessarily caving into the demand, not doing something really fishy, like dropping all the leaders who read this, led this revolt against the Federation, the Spanish national team. And then the worst thing of all is that he declined to show up in the document, right? I understand why Angel Maria Villar and Carrera didn't show up for the documentary. They're pieces of shit. They know they're getting destroyed in this. What are they going to come and say? Either it's a lie, which we all know is a lie, or they're going to try to defend what they did. Obviously, there's, they're not going to show up. But Vilda, why on earth are you not showing up in this instance to denounce this? You're the guy that in, inherited the position as the transitionary force to clean things up and make things better. And you can't even go onto this documentary and denounce what happened, you know, make assurances that things are better. And that type of stuff stinks to where it's like, it's the same club. He's not going to bite the hand that feeds him. And, you know, it's probably not nearly as bad as it was, but just a sense like there's a similar sort of attitude in there. There's a similar lack of seriousness with what's going on. And that like, I just am never going to be comfortable as long as people associated with people who did this are in charge of what's going on. And that's where I think it really ties into the present because I don't think it's been like a revolutionary change or something. And it's like the players have to fight to the extent that they did to just gain one in, right? Like what we're literally talking about now is a Spanish women's national team just being treated like a basic professional team. It's not like anything special is afforded to them. It's not like they have a especially great coach or anything. So that's literally all they were asking for. And they finally got that now. And I feel like there's so much more to go. Grant, feel free to, I mean, you can bring up any other moments yeah. you kind of saw in the documentary. Just your general take on, on the things you saw. What's laid out in the documentary is atrocious, unacceptable. It's unfathomable that people continue to do this kind of thing. But I think what you said there at the end just comes back to the thing that we've seen across the NWSL, across leagues and federations across the world, is that this culture that allows for this abuse, this power imbalance and these kind of things is systemic. And there is a huge systemic problem in sport in general and in women's football that needs to be revolutionized. Taking the people out, firing the people isn't enough. It, it requires a restructuring because if you plug in just another person in the same exact system, you know, they're going to they're gonna be molded by the system. There, there needs to be large-scale systemic change with a federation or team or league that are putting all of their money where their mouth is to make sure that they restructure so that players have a voice, a way that they can properly voice concern, because that's a huge problem that we've seen across multiple scandals this year. And this one that, you know, happened in the past where players tried to do the right thing. They tried to go through the right channels and they're ultimately ignored. And how can you trust a system and feel safe in a system that is basically out there to keep you quiet and to keep those in power in power 
and to keep you out of power. And until we start to have a reckoning with these institutions, it may get better because there's generally more eyes on sport, on there's more social media, there's more coverage, and they can't get away with what they used to, but there's definitely things still going on behind the scenes that won't be eradicated until we have systemic pain. A couple of things. One, to just kind of put into perspective how bad the situation was in Spain. Vero Boquete went to other countries, right, with internationals, and she got water handed to her when they were training, and that to her blew her away. The fact that she was given water at training, and that made her feel like she was being treated as a professional. Obviously, like, I don't want to kind of, like, put down the fact that the United States has been kind of like the gold standard for women's football for a long time, but I think this whole thing with the NWSL, like, revealed it might have been the gold standard, but that's because in a relative sense, everywhere else was shit, like complete shit. And what was revealed this year with the NWSL is, is like, it's so far from being great and perfect. And like, there's so much dirty, nasty stuff that's been revealed I mean, yeah. and that probably still needs to be revealed. And you have and someone like the US Federation too. I mean, they went yeah. to a World Cup and won it while they were also filing a lawsuit against their federation. Right. So and even so, the team that looks like, you know, maybe the grass is greener over there. It might be greener, but it's still not what it should be. Right. So Vero Boquete goes there and she's like, this is paradise, essentially, because that's how bad it was in Spain. And it, it kind of motivated her to kind of do the things she ended up doing. And can I, can I add something? Yeah, Toward the end of her NWSL career, she played for the Utah Royals who had their entire thing there, like they were uprooted and moved to Kansas city because their owner, Deloy Hansen had similar issues. She was playing at a team that, at, that basically got it. He Deloy Hansen was stripped of his right to own his MLS team, his USL team and his NWSL team because of his mistreatment, his racism, his sexism and other things like that. That's how bad it was in Spain. And it's still pretty awful in Spain. And she talked about, and this is the podcast, how she went and she talked to her teammates about that on the national team. And she's like, guys, professionalism is possible. You guys can get water at training. They were like, initially, don't tell us that. Because to tell us what we can't have and what is not happening here just depresses us further. Just there's so many things in this story that's just like, oh my God, like, the mental state that they were in and the kind of mental state that they were pushed into to where they felt like to even ask for water at training was too much to ask for their coach to be there at training. There were, again, this is the podcast Vero talks about how Kareda gets on a phone call. The assistant coach gets on the phone call and they just leave. And the physio is like conducting the training session all of a sudden, just randomly in the middle of practice. They felt like they couldn't even ask for those types of things. And to see that that stuff was happening elsewhere was just a depressing thought to them because they felt like they could do nothing about their situation. And this just brings me to the point about Vero. She's a hero. She very clearly understood the risks that she was taking. She knew that she was going to be cut from the national team after she did what she did, and she went and did it anyway. She used her experiences abroad. She saw what she saw, came back and said, I'm going to make this a reality with the Spanish national team. And I'm going to do it with my teammates. We're going to do it as a whole. We're we're going to do it as a collective. We're going to do it united. And we're going to make some change here. 
and she suffered for it. The icon of the Spanish national team, the greatest player ever, is not with the Spanish national team anymore. She hasn't been for a couple of years, along with other teammates. Her and everyone else are absolute heroes for what they did, for standing up to this guy. And to be honest, the players who stood up to him beforehand, who sent the letter, who tried to get him sacked years before, they're heroes too, even though they didn't succeed. It was the building blocks to eventually lead to the 2015 mutiny where enough was enough. I mean, my admiration for these players and the fact that they're probably the best national team in the world, if not one of the best undebatably, if you say the U.S., I mean, I'm not going to disagree with you, but I think bare minimum top five, and I think they're in contention for being the best in the world because we're just talking about translating Barca to the national team. The fact that they're at that level six years after this shit, six years after this, is insane to me. The way Spanish football has been able to grow into the powerhouse that it is, despite the complete lack of sport. And really what we're talking about is like active repression of them at every fundamental level to the point where it's just systemic and systematic abuse is insane to me. And my respect for these players has gone through the roof. I mean, I already respected them a lot, but it's just, I don't know how it's humanly possible to go through, go through all of this and come out of it. And let's be clear, some players were crushed. Some players had their careers ruined by this. And not in terms of being dropped from the national team, but in terms of losing their love for football and quitting themselves because of this. And so it's not just a story of what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. No, it, it killed some people. It ruined some people. And I have utmost respect for them too. I, it, I'm, I'm speaking about everyone here. It's not just about some kind of glorious success story where all of this ends out amazing and beautiful in the end. No, it's, it's a painful story that never should have happened. I have the utmost respect for anyone that had to endure that at all. And I think it's important to remember too, you know, a lot of these players, you got to thank the journalists and the players for sharing the story. It's super brave, but also take a look at what still needs to be done because there wasn't a single active Spanish player that was on active for their international squad that was on that documentary. And I'm sure that there's a reason for it. It's not that none of them wanted to talk, but maybe it's if they talked, they knew what their fate would be because we see video throughout the whole thing. There are plenty of players that are still on the national team that were not included in the video. And I mean, it's highly doubtful that they didn't experience this exact same thing so maybe to to bring it back maybe there is still that that culture because they may still be afraid to come out and speak about what's going on now marta corredera was there a young alexia was there jenny was there and this is where we get to what needs to be done because you're right like they cannot speak about this because guess what and this comes back to an issue we've talked about in relation to television rights. The RFEF controls the league. What happened when Mappi Leon last season, I think it was last season, complained about refereeing? And right, it wasn't even attacking the referee. It was just saying the standard of refereeing needs to improve, which is literally the most uncontroversial statement yeah, in all of We can all get on board on that. Literally, no one would disagree with that because it's so blatantly obvious. And basically, she was like, there needs to be investment. We need to train them better. The RFEF like suspended her for five games or something, which I think they maybe reduced to a couple games for her saying that. That's insane. 
And when you start to connect the dots to all this paternalistic controlling behavior we've been talking about, which is at an institutional level reflected in people like Tereda and Angel Maria Villar, it still stinks massively to me. And the fact that no current player was on it, the fact that Bilda was not on it, you're an idiot if you're not suspicious or you're naive and you haven't learned about the situation because it stinks big time to me. And the players know that it's not just about the national team, right? Maybe there is someone, maybe someone like Jenny, who's been on the national team a while. She's like, you know what? I've accomplished a lot here. I mean, I'm sure she's, I mean, her mentality, she wants to win the World Cup. But let's say she's like, okay, I'm at my age. I'll sacrifice if I need to, and I'll go on that documentary. But because the league is not a league and does not have its own organization, the RFEF could retaliate against her as a Barcelona player. And we've literally seen retaliation happen for much less. So I don't feel comfortable at all in saying story's over, all wrapped up. I don't think the players will ever be like treated the way they were under Kereda and abused the way they were. But I mean, we're talking about a pretty low fucking bar if that's all that needs to stop, right? Oh man, they have a first team analyst. They're, you know, not called Shavalita. And, you know, Vilda isn't going around saying homosexuality is a sickness that needs to be eradicated. Oh man, it's all good. No, until the players feel like they can come on to a situation like this and talk about something that happened in the past, let's keep a watchful eye on this, right? Like, I mean, this is our job, right? This is what we do as supporters, as fan journalists, whatever. The only, the only thing we can do is try to keep an eye on this situation be mindful of things like this and amplify stuff when it comes out like this. So this is not necessarily, this is not really new news. I, I think there's new things in the documentary, but this is stuff I just came upon. So I'm sharing with all of you. And I have a suspicion that this is news to a lot of you because I didn't expect the thread I did to kind of explode the way it did. There are tons of people who did not know about this. And in light of just everything that's being exposed in women's football on the moment, it has to be spread. It has to be known. And there should be extreme vigilance in regard to this organization and even more pressure for the REFDF to like fuck off and, you know, get their shit in order because currently we cannot form a league because they're intent on having control over it and grabbing TV. And it just, it all comes together, right? It's just this never ending connected cycle of, of everything we've been talking about that still leads to problems we're talking about today. And I feel like it's really important to understand this, to fully contextualize everything and then understand the solutions we need to take moving forward. Like, for example, we need a league organization ASAP and the RFEF cannot be in control for beyond just functional reasons, for the very reasons that they cannot have this type of control over players to where they can affect their club careers. If they say, no, it needs to be a separate organization, right? La Liga is a separate organization with Javier Tebas as the president. Luis Rubiales is not president of La Liga, but he's effectively president of Primera Iberdrola because Primera Iberdrola doesn't actually exist. So the final thing I kind of have to say, and I'm probably preaching to the choir here, is people think they've made like the most intelligent comment ever when they're like, well, you know, if you want people to like women's football, why isn't the product better? Why is the goalkeeping poor? Like they think they've just made the greatest comment in the world. I think there's several things you can do with that. A lot of times they're trolls. They just want to get a reaction out of you. And the best thing to do is block them and move on or completely ignore them. But for once, you know, let's just take it semi-seriously. Because I think 
on the off chance that I'm even reaching one of these people here, understand what these players have had to go through and still go through when you try to make a comment like, oh, I mean, men's football is just superior, right? The product is better. We are talking about globally on a systematic, institutional, purposeful level, a complete repression of women's football for the better part of the 20th century. You know the story in the UK where it was banned. This happened in so many places. And then when it finally came back, we have a situation like we did in Spain for 27 years of where a man and and the organization that backed him tried to crush the spirit, the dreams, and the opportunities of players who had literally nothing, nothing besides their own will, their own hard work, and their own talent to be able to make it to the place they did. Compare that to the $300,000, you know, dollar like ice bath that, you know, a Real Madrid star will have after, you know, they get a little boo-boo on their leg. I'm not saying they shouldn't have that, but think about what you're actually saying when you're like, oh, you know, why isn't the product the same? Haha, I'm the smartest fucking guy in the world. Yeah, the product isn't the same because on one hand, you have like a group of powerful individuals if they weren't systematically trying to destroy women's sport, were using it as kind of just their plaything, you know, to just abuse people and use it to kind of exercise their ego and their power fantasies to the point where that kind of went away. It became an attraction for some of the worst people to go to this still a pretty unregulated space to go and do the sick things that they wanted to do because they knew they could get away with it. Think about all that they have to go through to be where they are. And you realize that it's literally just an inevitability of the quality of the product that will emerge if we literally just treat them like basic human beings and give them the basic protections and regulations that all working human beings deserve. Because the product is fucking fantastic, given the fact that people are actively working against them every single moment, right? People say, why don't you put it on TV? Guess what? We can't have a fucking TV rights deal because this league isn't even a league. People make offhand comments like that without showing the slightest bit of understanding of what these players are off against and what's actually possible. We show even the slightest bit of intent and organizational capacity to promote women's football and it will explode beyond our wildest dreams because it's already gone so far, despite so much being against them. And that's how I wanted to end this, because I really think it's important that we understand when we have these stupid discussions and fights with these people, really step back and think about what these people have had to fight against to get where they are now, and then think about what we've still been able to achieve and then think about what is actually possible because that's the path forward. I think that's for all of like how depressing this has been. It's a lot to take all of this in, discuss it, and it weighs you down. I mean, there's the hope because they've come so far despite being given so little. That's it from us, guys. I hope that was informative for you. I hope it gave you a lot to chew on. Talk to you later, guys. Talk to you later, Grant. Hello, Madrid. Hello, Madrid.